Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Morning, it's Heather Adams here. Thank you for joining me on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be recommending some great books. I've been talking to Sunday Times best-selling crime author Cara Hunter. And we'll be talking about our favourite detectives in literature. Thank you for joining us today. Julian, good morning. Buongiorno, Heather. We've got a great show coming up for you today. Indeed, Heather. So what do we have coming up today? Well, I'm really excited because I've been talking to Cara Hunter, whose mm. book, The Whole Truth, is a brilliant read. So The Whole Truth was a Richard and Judy summer book club pick. Right. And I can really see why. So it's a great read with lots of twists and turns. And as we're talking detectives with Cara, of course you and I have chosen a few more of our favourite detective stories to share. We have indeed. And of course once again we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for everybody. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley, with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me at heather at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So, Julian, let's start with those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about all about books. And you've got a great one, I think, to start us off with. I do, I do. And it's Calling All Budding Authors. Uh, The Evening Standard and Netflix together are launching the Stories Festival and Competition in central London. And the purpose is to inspire a new generation of storytellers. Um, And it's it's featuring uh, Jed Mercurio, who wrote The Line of Duty. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yes. Really gripping stuff. An author, um, I must admit, I'm not too sure if it's Neoese, as, as how you pronounce the first name, Dolan, and the musician and writer, Will Young. I think it's Nisha. Oh, is it Nisha? Oh, dear. That's Sorry, all Nisha. right. Yes, uh, I do apologise. I think it's Irish names for oh, you, ah, always yes. difficult. Now, I can, always can get Fanula right, and that's a very difficult piece. Can, you, can, can you spell is. it, though? Ah, this <laughs> And then the second piece, we've got the Story uh, Festival, which is going to take place um, between the 24th and 26th of September, and it'll be in central London, where the competition winners will be announced. Now, the tickets go on sale in July, but the um, the possibility to um, enter is is available now, so it's that's open. So you can go um, and, and, and sign up for that. And the whole point of the competition is it's aimed at discovering a new generation of uh, voices... 
and writing talent. Now, there are two categories. There's the young adult category, which is from age 11 to 17. And then there's the adult category, which is 18 and over. And now to enter, um, look at their website. So if you have a pencil, uh, jot this down. It's stories.standard.co.uk slash competition. I'll repeat that, stories.standard.co.uk slash competition. Well, that's great, because we always need new new writing we talent. We do. Right. So did you spot in the Sunday papers that the Sunday Times are doing their, uh, their rich list this weekend? And uh, Marcus Rashford has become the, the youngest person to top the Sunday Times giving list. And that was because of his role in inspiring others to support the food poverty campaign last year. Oh, right. Yes, yes. But the reason I'm talking about him is not about that at all. But of course, he's also just written a book called You Are a Champion, How to Be the Best You Can Be. And working with W.A. Smith, the National Literacy Trust, and the publishers Macmillan Children's Books, who've published the book, what's happening is that for every book sold by W.A. Smith, they're going to give a copy to a disadvantaged child. Oh, right. So Rashford now has changed his focus from um, food poverty towards the importance of reading and literacy. Uh, within our communities. So we can only say a huge thumbs up for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't know if you saw a picture of him today in the Times. Uh, lovely smile and glorious white teeth. I envy those <laughs> teeth. <laughs> well, I've got, a, I've got another piece here, and it's to do with um, uh, the author, J.K. Rowling, um, who is, of course, famous for her Harry Potter books. And she has just donated £1 million of royalties uh, that she received from the royalties that she earned on her children's book, The Ichabog. Uh, and that's to help COVID-19 crisis in India. Uh, now, the Ichabod is a fairy tale about a kingdom called Cornucopia and a competition for illustrations for the book, which was released last year, included many winning entries from India. Uh, the two UK charities who have received the money are both involved in relief work, including the provision of emergency oxygen supplies. Well, that's a really good charity. It but is. But fancy earning a million pounds in royalty. But also uh, another thing that uh, I, I might point out with J.K rolling is that she is a very generous woman um and she's she's contributed a lot of money to to various causes and there's one really sweet story i mean yeah. you know when she was writing the harry potter um series and she she didn't have much money and she was oh, as a single mum in, in, in a cafe yes well when she became well known and wealthy she bought the cafe and gave it to the owner oh that yeah. is yeah. lovely and also um she she has a property i believe somewhere in perthshire yeah and in order to protect the surrounding areas for the village she bought a whole of of land so that it could never be developed brilliant yeah well Isn't i think great? if you're as wealthy as, as that yeah. you ought to do something yeah, for indeed. the community yeah. so that's, exactly. that's really fantastic exactly. well done jk rowling so finally you've got one more uh, piece of news which i spotted well i've spotted twice so i spotted it last week and it was about a letter written by albert einstein featuring his famous equation on mm -hmm. special relativity, which, of course, is E equals MC squared. Right, yes. And a letter including that equation has just come up uh, for auction. 
And so last week when I was reading the news, it was suggesting the uh, estimate would be $300,000. Well, the, uh, so this week, the, um, it's now happened. Yeah. And we've had the auction. And do you know how much it went for? I couldn't dream. Well, it's 1.2 million. Heavens above. Well, I need to start looking for some letters I've been writing because there must be some value in those, eh? <laughs> Bound to be. This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you very much for listening. We've got a great show all about detective stories this week. So that was Inspector Moore's theme, of course. And so to start off with a bang, I've been talking to best-selling author Cara Hunter, who's also based her uh, crime books in Oxford. So Ooh, her, oh yeah. her crime uh, detective, Detective Inspector Alex Forley. It's now book five, and the book The Whole Truth has just come out, and it's a Richard and Judy pick. And I've got to say that I picked it up and read it before I had a chat with her, of course. Mm -hmm. And it was so good. I then immediately bought the very first book, which is close right. to home. Yeah, yeah. And then I've now bought her, which I've read. And now I've bought a next, the next book in the series. Excellent. So they're really fabulous. Got lots of twists and turns. And the books are told, they're told in... Um, uh, Alex Forley's perspective mm -hmm. but then you also get newspaper reports and podcasts and Twitter feeds and all sort of spread out through the books it's a really interesting way of telling telling the story so I've been chatting with Cara Hunter but before we listen to that uh, conversation I thought we'd just listen to um, a little newspaper article taken from the whole truth right so here it is Daily Mail, 21st December 1999, Roadside Rapist Gets Life, article by John Smithson. The predator dubbed the roadside rapist was given a life sentence yesterday after a nine-week trial at the Old Bailey. Judge Peter Healy condemned Gavin Parry as evil, unrepentant and depraved and recommended he serve a minimum of 15 years. There was uproar in the court after the sentence was announced with abuse directed at both judge and jury from members of Parry's family in the public gallery. Parry has always insisted that he is innocent of the rape and attempted rape of seven young women in the Oxford area between January and December 1998. The case hinged on forensic evidence found in Parry's lock-up, 
linking him to one of the victims, which he contended was planted there with the collusion of Thames Valley Police. As he was led away, he was heard issuing death threats against the officer who had been instrumental in his apprehension, saying he would get him and he and his family would spend the rest of their lives watching their backs. The officer in question, Detective Sergeant Adam Forley, has received a commendation from the Chief Constable for his work on the case. Speaking after the verdict, Chief Superintendent Michael Oswald of Thames Valley Police said he was confident that the right man had been convicted and confirmed that no other credible suspect had ever been identified in the course of what became a county-wide investigation. I am proud of the work done by my team. They went to enormous lengths to find the perpetrator of these appalling crimes and bring him to justice. And it is absolutely unacceptable that they are to be subject to either threats or intimidation. Police officers put their lives on the line on a regular basis to protect the public and you may rest assured that we take all necessary steps to ensure the continued safety of our officers and their families. Jennifer Goddard, mother of one of the victims who committed suicide after her ordeal, spoke to reporters outside the court after the verdict, saying that nothing was ever going to bring back her daughter but she hoped she could now rest in peace. The man who destroyed her life is finally going to get what he deserves and pay the price for what he's done. Cara, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. So the whole truth is now out and I see it's uh, in the bestsellers list. So congratulations indeed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It's, a, it's been a, a roller coaster ride. A lot of ha has happened in a short space of time. So yeah, it's, it's been lovely to get responses from readers. I've, I've had some really nice messages, which has been really, really nice. Excellent. Well, I've read it and I'll join in the, the chorus of how brilliant it is. So tell me a little bit about your book, The Whole Truth. Right, yes, so this, this one is the fifth one in the series, and there's two, two stories running at the same time. One of them picks up on something that, that started in the previous book, but you get plenty of uh, information about that, so we don't have to worry if you haven't read the fourth one. But that's about uh, an old case of Adam Forley's, the, uh, the central detective, and it's a case that goes back a long time, um, a very serious a series of, of sexual assaults that took place uh, back in the late 90s, which he investigated and he was one of the people who was instrumental in bringing that uh, perpetrator to justice. Only it's not as simple as that, as he well knows. And now this man is about to be um, released and he's been vowing revenge. So Adam and indeed his wife, who's now heavily pregnant, are very concerned about the, the imminent release of this man and what he might do when he gets out. So that's one of the stories. And the other one is, is me having a look at a very contemporary issue, which is all about the Me Too movement and how that plays out in terms of sexual politics, gender politics. And it starts with an allegation um, made against a professor at the university by one of their students. Only this time, it's the opposite way around to what we assume in that the alleged perpetrator is a woman and the person who's alleging the assault is a strapping young man. So it turns the whole thing on its head from what we would normally expect to happen in a situation like that. So from my point of view, that allows me to look at it from a different angle and look at all the preconceptions we all have about that type of thing. And yes, it's, it's a very unusual situation for that type of assault to, to be alleged, but it does happen. 
Um, and there are there are cases every year, even though there are a small number of them. Uh, so it, it really challenges the police team as much as anything else. So, you know that, that this is something that none of them have ever come across, and, and challenges the way in which they think about that type of situation. So from my point of view, that was that's a very interesting one because it's all down to he said, she said, and it's the other way around. She said, he said. So it, from that point of view, it's it's uh, it's an interesting story to explore and start unpicking where the truth lies, hence the title, the whole truth. Where is the truth? Who's telling the truth? Are, are either of them telling the truth? So by the end, we do actually find out, but it takes a long time to work out all the strands of that story. Truth is a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because we all have our different versions of the truth and really believe it. Absolutely. And the one, one place that the title came from, obviously, we all know the phrase, uh, you, you, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So that's obviously where the phrase originates from the title. But it's also the name of a campaigning organisation in the book who are you know, campaigning for, for um, miscarriages of justice to be corrected. And uh, they believe that uh, the miscarriage of justice took place in this old case of, of Adams, the roadside rapist. They believe this man may not be guilty at all. So they've put together this podcast. And uh, so throughout the book, we get the episodes of this podcast and uh, looking back at that old story, you know, going back at it from different angles, looking at possible new evidence. And we and it's all dramatised in the sense that Alex, Adam's wife, who was involved in that case, is listening to this. So we're watching her reactions as she listens to this and listens to the case that she knows more about than anybody else and what they think happened. And, and she's wondering, you know, what truth do they think they have when she knows a truth of her own? So it's, it's all, there's all sorts going on there. So as you can imagine, there's, there was a, a lot of very interesting uh, thing to, to write, to, to have all those different angles coming in together at the same time. So where do you get your inspiration from? Well, with this one, I suppose it was more just the general ideas uh, around this one. Obviously, I had I had the, st- the story of the old case, the roadside ropes case, that was from the last book, so that was there already. But just I, I do generally like to look at a contemporary issue from a new angle or a different angle. So looking at the whole Me Too movement in in the in, in the wake of some of the scandals we've had, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. It was it was interesting to just take that that subject, read around it a lot, and, and see how that might play out. I mean, sometimes in my books, I I have a, a trigger from a real life case, for example, the second one was inspired, if that's the word, by the Joseph Fritzl case in Austria, where he imprisoned his own daughter for a year in in the basement. So that was like the jumping off point for that one. But for this one, for the whole truth, there wasn't a single case like that. So it's more just issues in the ether, really. And I suppose it's, it's... I often say I feel like a bit of a black, not blackbird, a magpie, really, and you know, going going around picking up bits and pieces from from all over the place and uh, putting them in my brain, and and eventually they sort of cluster together, and you start getting a story emerging or a potential story. So I think I think that's the best answer to where do the ideas come from? It's from melding together of yeah. different things that I've picked up here and there. There seems to be a sort of a golden age of crime reading at the moment so what is it that draws us to read about crime and is that the same thing that draws you to write about it I I think it's at its best and I can think of lots of really good crime writers I think at its best crime is a very good way of looking at contemporary issues because by definition 
people involved in a crime story are people who are at an extreme of some kind. They've been put into an extreme situation, either through their own bad choices or through bad luck or through somebody else's bad choices. Uh, so I think that that's why crime done well can actually shine a light on contemporary issues and contemporary society better than some other genres, actually, because it has that element of emergency or extremity it built into the genre because it's that's the sort of story it tells in terms of reading about crime i i suppose it's there's a sort of proxy in enjoyment of it and that it's it's something that's that you can you can read about something like that and know that you're safe while you're doing it it's not actually happening to you it's a sort of surrogate reality or at one remove so i think perhaps that's one reason why why we we, we're drawn to it. And also, I think the basic thing about humans and secrets, we are just so nosy. We all wonder what happened. So if you've got a genre that's set up on the, on the basis that something's happened and you want to know what and you want to know who did it and why and you know some sort of mystery set up at the beginning of a story, whether it's a crime, pure crime or whether it's an, another type of mystery genre, I think that's we're just hardwired as human beings to 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 want to to want to know, to want to find out. And yeah, as you quite rightly said, it's a safe environment, isn't it? So things can scarily happen. And yeah. then you know that you're okay. It's you're like, okay. And almost always you know, good triumphs in the end. In, in a crime book. I mean, not every crime book is like that, but uh, I remember talking to my editor about it and, and, and she said, in, one, in one, at least one of my books, the, the, I won't say which one, the, the police don't actually find out exactly what happened. And, and we had quite a long conversation about that because she said, oh, well, no, no, we can't, we can't do that. It has to, you know, justice has to be seen to be done at the end. And, and I was arguing back, well, no, real life isn't like that. You know, the police don't always get it right. They get it right most of the time, thankfully. But it, sometimes there are cases that just resist being solved. So we did end up, we, we stuck with, with, the, with the ending and, and no one seemed to mind, readers didn't seem to mind. But there is a strong pull in the genre that you, you're supposed to, to mete out justice at the end and the bad guys are supposed to get justice is that in an, another book say number 10 or something like that you used to like revisit the old one <laughs> well it is quite tempting I certainly I've been asked several times particularly about the first book close to home whether I'll ever revisit the characters that are in that and I, I certainly could though it would it need to be quite a long way down the line I think yeah. I'd need a lot of water to go under the bridge before I could do that but it's always a possibility, you know, again, it would all be about whether I could think of a good story to put them in, you know, not just bring yeah. them back for the sake of it, but put them in a good story. So your DI, Adam Forley, he's a, I'm going to say he's a wounded character. And right from the word go, you get, so from the very first book, you get hints of a deep sadness in, in him. But you've also got a team. So it's not just him, is it? Did you sort of have these characters in mind? Did you know their journey when you first started writing? Not, no, no, that was, I mean, several people have asked me about this because they, I think they thought I must have a big plan, like you say, the 10 book plan. But in fact, I had no idea it was even going to be published, the first one. And I certainly didn't sit there thinking, well, this is going to be a series. I mean, quite the opposite. And it didn't start as the idea of being a police procedural or whatever, you know, genre or name you want to give it. It started that one as the, the story of a missing child, and that's where the where the idea came from, and that it really just necessitated a police team because a police team would always be involved in investigating something like that. So, so Adam really was a byproduct of that. 
Uh, and certainly not in any way, you know, I, I, I thought of him and then created a world in which he would live. It was quite the opposite. He, he, sort of, he evolved from necessity. And, and I like the idea of it not being just the sort of lone maverick. I mean, there is an lo awful lot of crime that's a lone maverick detective and is usually divorced and he's a hard drinker and listens to jazz. Or, and there's some brilliant characters just like that out there. But I thought, well, I can't do another one of those. I mean, it's got to be a bit different. So, you know, this guy's in love with his wife. I mean, wow, <laughs> there's something new. As you say, he has got a bit of a sad past, but again, that was dictated. We get told this very early in the first book, so it's not a spoiler. I mean, he's, his own child died, one, one little boy who died, and, and actually took his own life, which again is a, a very unusual thing to happen, terribly sad, uh, but does happen. Some small children do do that. It's not, it's not impossible. So that, that was di not dictated, but that sprang from, again, the first, the dynamics of the first book, where we have parents who have lost a child looking for their child. Yeah. Uh, so that became a sort of counterbalance in his life, that he knew what that's like, a different type of loss, but loss all the same and relatively recent at that point. Uh, so again, it it wasn't it wasn't about him that that was it was about the story and ways of telling the story and way, ways of tapping into the emotion of the story, and so that's how that evolved. And I was just so 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 lucky that the, both him and the team uh, turned out to be people that I could do a lot more with, and particularly the dynamics within the team, moving people around. I occasionally added new characters just to shake it up a bit and. Yeah. Um, but they're an interesting bunch and, and uh, they've got some interesting dynamics going on and, and they're, they're great fun to write. You know, I, I sort of think of them as friends, really. So as an author, do you have sort of complicated characters because they're more interesting to write or do they need to be complicated so that gives them a benefit for solving a, a crime? It's like an insight into solving a crime. It's interesting because actually I had exactly that experience. I think it was in the third book, No Way Out, where one of the things that's being explored is postnatal depression and, and the impact that may have had on one of the characters. And, and it, so it, it evolved in my understanding of the character of, of, of Quinn, Gareth Quinn, who's a sort of, you know, ladies' man of the team. He's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a wide boy in some ways and certainly fancies himself. And he sometimes, he sometimes can come over as a bit of a cliche, but that's, of course, because that's how cliches become cliches is because they're very common. So, you know, he is a common type, but there's more to him than, than just that. And it's, I sort of discovered that that was something that happened in his own personal past, that his own mother had suffered from it. And so he was perhaps unexpectedly attuned to that problem and how it might play out in a family dynamic and the problems it might create for the children, which sort of surprised me. I know that sounds bonkers because these are characters in my, my own brain, but other writers will tell you exactly the same thing, that you're, if your characters are really working, then they will start doing things or having elements in their past that you don't know about. And that's, it's as strangest as strange experiences, but it does always tell you, oh, well, this is a real character because uh, they've got more to them than I expected. So yeah. that's, that's always a nice thing to happen when, you, when you're writing a, um, a character like Quinn. And what is it about Oxford and crime? <laughs> Apart from the midsummer area, I don't know, an area that has more crime. <laughs> I know, I know. It's very, it's very funny because when I when I first wrote uh, Close to Home, the first one in the series, 
and, and I set it where I live because close to home, it's one of the, one of the sort of ironies of the title, but it, it is a very interesting city from the point of view of sort of overlapping communities. So you've got the overlapping of, the, of town and gown, obviously, which happens elsewhere as well. But you've got quite a small city, really, geographically, but lots of different communities, uh, both geographically in terms of north, south, east, west, but the di- different sort of groups of people, people who've been here a very long time for generations, people who just come here as students or as part-time professors and who will be leaving again or whatever so there's a very interesting dynamic of of people which I think sets up lots of potential for stories uh, because of potential potential because stories arise out of tension but when I first did the book I thought oh golly I can't possibly set it in Oxford everyone's been Oxforded out we had Morse and Lewis and Endeavour, and I love them all. Um, but thought, I can't do that again. No one's going to want to read this. So I disguised it. I called it something else. And then <laughs> I took, we took the book to what became my, my editor at Penguin. And virtually the first thing she said to me was, this is Oxford, isn't it? So obviously my disguise was pretty rubbish, wasn't it? And I, I sort of looked rather shamefaced and she said, well, no, no, turn it back to Oxford immediately. <laughs> and I sort of know what she means because I think one of the reasons the, um, the books sell very well around the world is that everybody knows Oxford. I don't have to describe it in the books. Everyone has a picture in their heads. But I do try very hard not to do the university thing, not to do the, you know, the, the dons in the quads knifing each other, you know, wearing their gowns sort of thing. Partly because it has been done beautifully already, but, but it's just not that part of town that I'm particularly interested in. I mean, the whole truth is a slight exception because that does have a college context but it almost had to, really, if you're looking at that type of, sort of Me Too incident, you know, a university area is, is obviously somewhere where that, that's going to be an interesting setting to yeah. put that type of story. So it made no sense to try and make it up and put it somewhere else other than the university. But I did very, very deliberately not put it in one of the older colleges in the centre of town. I put it in a former women's college, again, because that... We're looking you know, upside down in terms of assumptions. So it was happening in a former women's college now headed up by a man. So again, all the, all the opposites coming into play in terms of gender politics. So that's why I, why I did it this time, but I, I usually try to avoid it, try to look at the other bits of the town. <laughs> I loved it in the first book when you actually make a, a nod to, to Morse and the, yes. and the car and the, and the crossword puzzles. Yes, I don't do bloody crosswords. I know. <laughs> I know. I think, I mean, you have to have that sort of knowingness, really. If you're going to set a book in Oxford and it's a detective book, I mean, you talk about elephant in the room. So you might as well say, here's the elephant. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, that's quite fun because that that was one of the first um, times we see Adam's sort of rather dry sense of humour as well. Yeah. Because um, I guess I get him to you know talk in the first person, so we get right inside his brain. And he has he is quite funny actually. One of the things I, I like about him is he's he's very dry and he's very funny. And so it does it does help every now and again just to have that little lightness in the books. Not everything is serious and dark. So what I want to know is how do you get all the inside knowledge from sort of like police and crime scenes and things do you have a big team and and what do they do I mean to start with I didn't and to start with when I first wrote close to home I I had nobody and partly because I I thought well 
I'm just yet another, you know, wannabe crime writer. And you can't just bowl up to a police officer and say, you know, you've got a really important, busy job. Could you spend hours reading my book? No, I just didn't feel that was justified. I couldn't, um, I couldn't uh, ask somebody to, to help in that way since I didn't know anyone. So I did it all online to start with. And you'd be amazed what you can find out. So I, I, I watch so much TV crime as well. I'm a complete crime junkie. Um, so I suppose I absorbed a lot by osmosis as well. So I wrote it without asking anyone. Again, my editor said the first thing, one of the other first things she said was, wow, this feels so authentic. Do you know loads of police officers? So I had to fess up at that point and say, that's yeah, a fair cop. No, I don't know anybody. So, so she sort of laughed and suggested that perhaps now's the time to talk to a police officer. So I, I did then because it became a serious project that was definitely going to get published i did uh, through a friend of a friend get contact with uh, a real life di uh, who's fabulous he's absolutely brilliant very uh, sort of dry sense of humor and <laughs> we always have interesting sort of tussles particularly about the interview transcripts which i love doing one of my favorite things but he he always says to me at least once in every first draft oh no come on no they would have arrested them by now <laughs> I always want to leave that towards the end, you know, make it sort of big moment where someone's arrested. But he says, no, 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 we do it at the beginning. <laughs> it's a, it, that's always an interesting little sort of tussle between drama and, and real life. But uh, no, he's fabulous. And I also have a, a, an utterly wonderful CSI, the real one. You know, he, well, he doesn't do it now that he used to. So he yeah. literally used to be the guy in the blue gloves, you know, picking things up off the floor. And he's fabulous. You know, he absolutely is is fabulous. And and you know, he's the one person I talk to about my ideas before I even start. And um, everybody else, all my other advisors, as a legal guy and a doctor and people like that, they they get to see it really once it's in first draft form, so that I don't waste their time. But Joey, my CSI, I ask him straight up because these days everything hinges on forensics. Yeah. So you can come up with a fabulous idea, what seems to you to be a fabulous idea. And, you know, you show it to or talk to Joey about it. And you'll say, oh, no, no, we picked that up in five minutes. You know, there would be no story. <laughs> you can't afford to spend you know, months and months writing something that is actually completely unrealistic because it would have solved straight away. So uh, he's the one I always have to check things with. And I did have a wonderful moment when I was... Um, coming up with the idea for the whole truth, the current one, uh, where there's a big forensic crush crux in that, which I won't go into because it is a spoiler. Uh, but I do remember saying to, to Joey about that, look, this is what I want to do, what do you think? And there was this wonderful moment where he started going, hmm, wow, yes. <laughs> So he said, yeah, I think that's, that's a real caucus. So I was so pleased because I, I caught with something that even he hadn't seen. So, so yeah, he's the, he's the key member of the team, really, because if it gets past him, it's probably got some legs. <laughs> Brilliant. So I heard there's going to be a TV series of that. Of the house. Yeah, and, hopefully. And also your audio books, you've done a bit, one or two excerpts in the audio books. So are you going to be like Colin Dexter and pop into your... <laughs> television series so we all have to guess which one Cara Hunter is. I know I know um, it's not certain yet we've got we've got the production company but we don't yet know if we have the 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 network yet that's the next step so that's nothing certain until we get to that but 
if, if we do get it, uh, the temptation to just be someone sitting having a coffee in the background is going to be too great. I, I accept that. I will, I will absolutely have it. And probably all my friends will want to do it as well. Can I join in, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah, come one, come all. It's going to be hilarious. Uh, no, but it, it would be, my. I think, my all-time dream come true would be to see it on TV. I mean, it's been lovely seeing it on in bookshops. And, and I mean, that's been absolutely wonderful. But I think TV would just be the, the cherry on the top of the cake, really. Will, well, fingers crossed. I'm sure it will go well. Cara, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. This is River Radio, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. Thank you for joining us. So we've just been talking about the latest detective fiction, obviously, with Cara Hunter. And that got Julian and I thinking about all the detective novels that we've got on our bookshelves and have read over the years. So we've sort of come up with a few, and of course, it's only a tiny number. We could go on forever about this, couldn't we, I suppose? We could, we could. But I just wanted to say, well, <clears throat> with that interview with Cara, well, that was a lot of interview for your money. That was <laughs> no, really good. She's but great. Though, she is she? fabulous. Super. And I've got to say, the books oh, are, super, are, are they? brilliant. Right. They are must really good. Them. So I absolutely so really must. It's D.I. Alex Forley. Yep. And there's five of them. If you buy The Whole Truth, which is the one that's in all of the bookshops mm-hmm. everywhere at the moment, then she does really cleverly. She's got at the very beginning sort of like a precy of all the main characters oh, right, and, okay. and where yeah. their stories are up ah, to. great. But the very first one, Close to Home, get that as well, Super. because that's also in the bookshelves. I pick mine up in Marlowe Bookshop, so excellent, it's excellent. everywhere. Well, the book that uh, I've chosen is a little bit further away from, from the Thames Valley, uh, and it's actually uh, called The End of the World in Breslau, and it's uh, written by a great um, uh, Polish author called Marek Karajewski, and it was first published in uh, 2009 by the McElhose Press, and it's still currently available. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, In fact, The the End of the World in Breslau is second in the series of detective novels featuring criminal counsellor Eberhard Mock. Um, And they're uh, set in decadent Breslau in the late 1920s, which was part of Germany at the time in Silesia and under the liberal Weimar Republic. It's an amazing environment to set a a series of books. It's quite threatening, isn't it? Well, it isn't, isn't, I mean, because at that point it was just prior. I mean, obviously Hitler was probably in the background. Yeah. But at this point, there's no involvement in Nazis. So it's actually, it's it's, it's sort of life in, in Breslau, which seems to be quite a decadent city. And this one, this one it, it opens up in 1927 with the discovery of two male bodies. One is a locksmith who's been bound and gagged and walled up alive, and the other a musician who's been found quartered and his fingers severed. Now, apart from the savagery of the deaths, the only common factor uh, is that each body has a page of a calendar left with it marked in blood. Now, to be able to solve uh, these appalling murders, uh, Mock has to make his way through the murky underworld of Breslau, it, to its brothels, to its bathhouses, to its casinos, in fact, anywhere and everywhere that caters for all imaginable tastes. Now, this doesn't present a problem for Mock, um, as his morals are pretty lax anyway. They are. Uh, they're pretty, yeah. Mm. As you, uh, yes, you did a little bit of uh, research as well, didn't you? And he was prodigious appetites, and he's not shy of knocking pe- uh, people about, including his 
wife. Um, however, beneath even this squalid world in which he operates, there's another of drugs and ritual orgies, and among those indulging are members of a debauched aristocracy who'll do stop at nothing to um, keep their uh, appetites uh, and desires uh, out of, of view. Uh, with all this on his plate, uh, and with his casual treatment of his beautiful um, or, uh, treatment of his wife Sophie, Mock's marriage, unsurprisingly, is verging on collapse. Yet he has to save her from her friend uh, called Elizabeth, who's in association with a very mysterious figure who may be at the heart of an apolip- uh, sorry apocalyptic movement gripping the city. Um, now, one thing that I have to say, I'm going to leave it there because you have to read the books, but, but uh, the author's descriptions of 1920s Breslau is absolutely superb. I mean, really stunning, which is really interesting because he was born in 1966. I mean, he's really got the whole thing taped. It really is atmospheric. Um, now, the interesting, now, Breslau is actually um, now in Poland, and it's pronounced, I think, Wro- Wrocław, which... Not oh, being- so that's where he... he- He's from. Yes, but ah, it, right. yes. So, so Breslau is now Wroclaw, but what uh, Wroclaw? But for those of you who don't speak Polish, which I don't, it's actually spelled W R O C L A W. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and of course, it was ceded to Poland after the war. Well, I've got to say that the <clears throat> books uh, are a stunning production. They the are, front okay. covers yeah. are amazing. They are. And, and, I, and, I, and I think, as far as I, I, I've checked, I think they've translated those jackets onto the paperbacks as well. Brilliant. Which is really good, because they're, yeah. they're fantastic. Because I've got the hardbacks, uh, and, and that's what drew me, was that these jackets are really quite fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, oh, you mentioned that they're published by McElhose yes. Press. And I think Christopher McElhose, who's the guy who run, uh, he used to run McElhose Press, that's right. uh, he has got an amazing eye. So he's the guy that also picked up the girl with the dragon tattoo. Two. Indeed he was. And then two, two, three years ago, he had that amazing bestseller called Norwegian Wood, which is the most bizarre book. Yeah. And it just hit the top selling yeah. charts yeah. for weeks and weeks and weeks. It and it's just about chopping wood. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, 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 I met uh, Christopher McElhose because, in fact, I actually worked um, as a freelancer for uh, when he was running um, Harville. Oh, and, right. And okay. His other great coup at that time was uh, Murakami. Oh, oh, brilliant. Which is superb. And I remember, because uh, I was, uh, my patch is the Far East, and, yeah. and I was selling the English language version in, in Japan. And I remember having a meeting with one of my customers, Mr. Sonoda from Ginnikanir. Yeah. And uh, he produced um, uh, an article in, um, in the um, Asahi Shimbun, the, uh, one of the national newspapers, and was a full page advertisement in colour. And it was basically the Japanese saying what a fantastic job Harvard had done about promoting. Murakami worldwide brilliant. in English. Yeah, yeah. It's that's all Christopher. I know yeah. he's got an amazing eye, yeah. and I just see that he's now launched a new um, company called uh, Mountain Leopard Press. Oh, right. And he's joined Walbeck. So ah, his first books aren't out yet, but they are, will be coming out over the yeah. summer. And do look out for Mountain Leopard Press because I can guarantee you'll get some great books with them. Exactly. I mean, anything that Christopher McElhose has got his hands on, yeah. you, you won't be disappointed. Absolutely He's a great not. editor. Really yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Great publisher. Yeah. Right, so you've picked 1922 Poland or... 1927 Poland. 1927, yeah. I do apologise. Right. So I have picked as one of my 
favourite authors, um, 77 AD Britain. Oh, yes, a little bit further back. Yeah, or even 69 AD Britain, actually. Uh, So Lindsay Davis. Um, And she is fantastic. She writes about um, a detective called Falco Mm -hmm. in the uh, Roman period. And I've got Ah. to say, I adore these books. Have you ever been to Pompeii, where you're sort of walking through the streets and you'll see the little sort of um, bars that they would have? So it would be like a... uh, a, a piece of stone and they'll have holes in and the mm-hmm. holes will be where they'd have great big pots of meats and Ooh. liquids bubbling away. So you, you sort of see that in Pompeii as a ruin and then you read the Falco books and you actually can imagine walking through those streets. Um, if you've been to Rome and you're sort of walking mm-hmm. around the yes. Forum and there's mm-hmm. a great big tenement and it's sort of like six stories high yeah. and it's sort of quite impressive but because it's a ruin right. uh, you just sort of look at it and go oh that was clever. But actually in the Falco books falco lives on the sixth floor of this tenement and you just sort of get a feel for how seedy it was and how dangerous the streets were and it's i've got to say they're absolutely brilliant so i just love them all and so there's 20 of the falco books and then very cleverly um his adopted daughter flavia albia has now so um lindsay davis has started running a series of books so parallel but well they're sort of slightly later on so i see right so it sort of starts where Falco finishes. Right. Um, and it's the same um, same sort of view. So they're funny and they, they're mm-hmm. very caustic. And it sort of gives you this great view of Roman. But it's from the viewpoint of a woman instead of a guy. Mm-hmm. And there's familiar people and places. But she's obviously got her own circle of acquaintances and lovers and problems and her past and mm-hmm. her future. And um, so these books are still being printed. So the last one in this book, A Comedy of Terrors. Oh, uh-huh. mm-hmm. A little oh, bit of, yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> I think actually on Lindsay Davis' uh, website, you can, it's a little competition to see how many Shakespearean um, oh, quotes <laughs> that you can find in the books. <laughs> Super. But anyway, so her latest book, uh, A Comedy of Terrors, was the Sunday Times Crime Club star pick. Ooh. So it's really, it's a great, great book. Right. So do you want to, uh, you're going to do the next one, so shall we do a reading first? Yeah, I think a reading would be great. Brilliant. The Hanging Shed by Gordon Ferris, Chapter One. There are no windows in the Hanging Shed. Only a sadistic architect would provide a last glimpse of the fair green hills. The same goes for paintings or potted plants. You're unlikely to divert the condemned man from the business in hand with a nice-framed monarch of the Glen or a genteel aspidistra. Besides, he'll only visit once, wearing a hood. Before the war, I was taken to the hanging shed of His Majesty's prison, Barlini. Years after, I can close my eyes and recite every dismal detail and dimension as though they were tattooed on my eyelids. Think of a clutch of grey monoliths scarring the countryside on the outskirts of Glasgow. Each solid rectangle studded with tiny barred windows, the roofs festooned with Victorian chimneys. Like houses drawn by an obsessive child. The whole ugly mass surrounded by a tall grey wall. Focus in on the central courtyard and the building known as D Hall. Inside is a standard prison set-up a high-vaulted chamber with galleries facing each other across a gulf. Cells stud the walls on each level. 
Metal decks bridge the galleries. Metal staircases connect the levels. There is one special cell on the third floor. Its occupant has nowhere to go except across the short bridge and through the plain wooden door on the other side. Take the walk. Go through the door. Eyes open. Inside, the air is inert and the white walls press inwards. In the centre, set in the floor, is a trapdoor. Alongside, and surely connected, stands a lever. There are three square holes in the ceiling directly above the trapdoor. You can see the long retaining beam in the room above. A noosed rope dangles from the beam through the central hole. The two other holes gape invitingly, ready for rush hour in the hanging shed, three at once, jostling for position on the trapdoor. Today a lone figure stands on a chalked tee in the centre of the trap. A broad leather strap binds the upper body. A hood covers the head. The noose is draped over the hood and around the neck. Soft leather coats the noose. No abrasions here for a tender neck. The noose is held in place by a brass slip to make sure it tightens quickly and efficiently, to snap rather than throttle. The mark of a civilised society. A man in a blue uniform walks across the echoing floorboards. He grips the lever and grins. There is a shocking clang and thud and the trapdoor falls open. The joist in the room above gives out a tortured creak as it takes the weight. The figure plunges into the void of the floor below where a slab waits. The rope hardens and trembles like a plucked guitar string. The guard sneers at the white faces of the four new constables being shown round for their edification. He signals to the guard below to take down the dummy. Well, there we are. I think that's quite a dramatic um, uh, entry to the book. That's the beginning of, of, of The Hanging Shed. It is brilliant, it, I've just, got to say. Yeah, it just is. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Hanging Shed by Gordon Ferris, first published in by Corvus in 2011. Uh, and it's the first of the Glasgow Quartet, um, put together, written by Ferris. And it introduces us to uh, Douglas Brodie, who's an ex-policeman. And the novel is, um, uh, is set in Glasgow in 1946. And the last time that uh, Douglas Brodie was was back in town was in 1942 when he was a dashing uh, young soldier in a kilt. The war is over now but there's very little to to celebrate because Brodie's back in in Glasgow to try and save his childhood friend a guy called Hugh Donovan uh, from the gallows. Um, And it was thought that Donovan had been shot down um, during the war and in fact had died um, and perhaps it would have been kinder if he had been killed because the man who returned was completely unrecognisable, mutilated and horribly burned. Mm. But he kept himself to himself, um, only venturing out to buy heroin to deaden the pain of, of, of his injuries. But when a local boy was found raped and murdered, there's only one suspect. Well, anyway, Donovan um, claims his innocence, um, but even with the mounting evidence saying otherwise... Um, 
and despite that seriousness, Brody decides that he's really got to help his friend because he because he doesn't believe he's done it. Yeah. So he works hand in hand with Donovan's uh, advocate, um, Samantha Campbell, and he trawls Brody trawls through the mean streets of the Gorbals and of the green hills of Western Scotland, and they together they're searching for the truth. But what they find, which is alarming, is an unholy alliance between the church, the police, and Glasgow's deadly razor gang who are happy to slaughter anyone to protect their dark secrets but as time is running out uh, for the poor guy Brody knows that he's um, got to change his game because the tally of murdered people is rising and so Brody reverts to his wartime role which is a trained killer because it's either them or us. Yeah. And I have to say, um, Heather, I can't recommend Gordon Ferris enough. These books are so atmospheric. They're absolutely superb. You must go out and buy them. Well, I've got to say, both of your choices, I'd never heard of them. Oh, right. Okay. And they're brilliant. Yeah, thank they're you. They're really good. Thank and you. I think that's what, what I love about this show mm-hmm. is yeah. that you don't know what you're going to enjoy yeah. until somebody tells exactly. you about it. The surprises. Yeah. I know. But interesting that your hero was Brody. Yes. Because I've got his brother here. Oh, yeah, heavens to Betsy. <laughs> Jackson Brody. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so Jackson Brody is um, the detective from the Kate Atkinson novels. So oh, yes, you yes. know Kate Atkinson. Yeah. She's, I'm going to say she's a literary um, doyen because her books are really well received um and they they're just they her very first book won the well what is now the costa prize it used to oh, be yes. the whitbread prize yes, so that was called uh, behind the scenes at the museum and it's just a great title mm-hmm. so you sort of and another one of her titles is a, a um oh i walked my dog oh, can't can't remember it now but <laughs> sorry um anyway she just got great titles for books and um uh, she's written a detective um, series, which is quite a, a change for her because she doesn't really write detective novels. But she's written five of them now, and Jackson Brody is the um, is the detective. And you might have seen it in a television series called Case Histories, sort of about ten years ago, mm-hmm. actually. Yes, yes. And Jacek Isaacs was yes. the uh, was the guy. Yeah. And so the very first of her series was was Case Histories, and she hasn't written any of uh, her detective series for for years, which is a real disappointment. But actually, just now, just in the last sort of a uh, few weeks a uh, big sky has just been has just been published and that sort of brings him back and this time he's uh, he, he is from Scotland hence oh, the name right, yes. but this time he's in the seedy underbelly of a Yorkshire seaside town um, but it get, it's got great reviews and what's really brilliant about her uh, writing is it's funny Oh, so good. it's really witty good. and wise and it's sort of quite literary mm-hmm. so if you want to read it for a book club you feel there's lots of lots of content there that you can contact Com- uh, you know, discuss, discuss and yeah, debate. get to grips. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, as an author, she she's written lots of that's prize winning. So, and I could recommend all of them actually. Super. Um, so it's brilliant. So I was really pleased that um, she's brought Jackson Brody back again. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's good. Re- that's really good. Good, good. So we have got a little bit of just a little bit of news news mm-hmm. to finish yeah. the uh, the program off. 
and uh, it's the British Book Awards, the Nibbies, yes. that have been announced. Now, we are going to talk about those in more detail next week. Right. However, because we're talking about um, detective fiction, yeah. I thought it'd be really useful to talk about the crime and thriller book of the year. Uh, yes. So yes. the British Book Awards is the best of the book trade in the UK. So it's celebrating the publishing industry. And um, Robert Galbraith by uh, So Troubled Blood by Robert Galbraith has just won the Crime and Thriller Book of the Year. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we know Robert Galbraith with a different name, we J.K. Do. Rowling. Indeed. And Troubled Blood brings back uh, Cormoran Strike and his, uh, his sidekick, Robin Ellicott. Uh, right. Um, yes, yes. So, again, it's just intelligently crafted, right. I think. Well, we, can, we know that J.K. Rowling is going to do a great story, don't yeah, we? Yeah, indeed we do. We do indeed. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's great. Yes. Well, uh, we have something um, from a listener, a local lass called Kate Hull. Um, she emailed to recommend a detective um, series which was associated with Windsor, which, of course, was a subject uh, we had last week. I've got to say, we were struggling to I, find I books know. associated with... That's this brilliant that Kate Hull has actually phoned in. And it's super, and and it's called The Winds Are Not by S.J. Bennett. How did we not find that? I don't know. Exactly, because we were scouring all over the place and we ended up with one ancient historical book that I couldn't find any other details. But this is superb. And it's a cosy crime whodunit. um, And it's committed at at Windsor Castle. And the Queen, with her PA, become the main detectives, which I think is absolutely fantastic. It's just a great idea, isn't it? Absolutely. And they're determined to prove the innocence of a wrongly accused member of staff. Uh, It's been described as a Miss Marple meets the crowd. (laughs) Uh, And what is good news is the second book's been written, which is a three-dog problem, which is a bit bit of a pun on Sherlock Holmes. I think a three-pipe problem, yes. And and that's going to be out in November, apparently. That's fantastic. And I think, actually, S.J. Bennett is is quite a well-known author. She's quite a popular author. Yes. So I think this is a... A really good book. Yeah, I think so. Uh, certainly a must to read. I, I think this is super. Yeah, yeah. no, really, yeah. really good really, idea. So really thanks, is. thanks for, for thanks letting for us know about that. Yes. Yeah. So talking about thank you, it's time to say our thanks. Yes. So I'd like to say thank you to Cara Hunter mm-hmm. with her latest detective novel, The Whole Truth, which is published by Penguin and available now and is thoroughly recommended. And I thought in addition to The Whole Truth, we ought to talk about the other books that have been recommended in this problem, in this programme. <laughs> a problem programme. It is a problem programme, I hope not. <laughs> well, yes, just a little rundown of this, so everybody just to remind you what we've had. We had The End of the World in Breslau by Marek Krajewski. We've got Lindsay Davis with A Comedy of Terrors. The Hanging Shed by Gordon Ferris. Kate Atkinson, Big Sky. Robert Galbraith, Troubled Blood. And Windsor Knot by S.J. Bennett. So, Julian, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. And thank everybody for, uh, for listening. You're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, great book recommendations, if you run a book club or are a local author, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news. And we'd be delighted to include your thoughts and ideas in future shows. 
So next week, we'll be chatting with husband and wife author team, AJ McKenzie, who will be talking about their favourite books. And also, we'll be joined by four-year-old Reading author, Nadim, and his mum. Now, Nadim has just entered the Guinness Book of Records as the youngest person in the UK with a commercially published book. It's it's called um, Take Off... Um, Taking Off My Brave. Yeah, Take Off Your Brave. And it's a lovely little book. And uh, it, was, it was a delight uh, chatting, chatting with them. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. Great. So I look forward to you joining me next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. But do stay tuned as SJ is coming on now for Let's Do Lunch.